Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Uh, my guest on today's podcast, sometimes we have kind of uh, people that aren't well-known, and the purpose of this podcast is to give them a platform to share their story. And other times we have people that are kind of famous and have written books and speak frequently. And um, we kind of have, David's not going to like me call him kind of famous, but we do have somebody that's pretty prominent in the LDS community on the podcast today. It's my friend, Dr. David Morgan. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Richard. I'm so glad to be here. David is um, uh, has a PhD from BYU. He's a licensed psychologist. He's written four books. He's a public speaker. He's involved with Onward Productions. Them, and we can talk more about that. He's we're going to talk about his expertise, which is really me- mental illness. In fact. Um, the email we exchanged, um, it just resonated with me. My focus is helping people understand and cope with mental health issues, particularly through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's written four books, as I've mentioned, dozens of articles for LDS Living, um, virtual firesides for Onward Productions, and was scheduled to present at BYU Women's Conference and Education Week in, uh, in 2020, but those were canceled. And so welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you. Tell us, you have, um, I'm going to just do a little more bio here. David is married, um, 29 years, six children, three grandchildren. Those are similar numbers that my wife and I have, although David's a little younger. Um, David now lives in the Pacific Northwest in Vancouver, which is just north of Portland, Oregon, across that beautiful bridge. Um, Talk, I just, uh, you know, I was teasing, I was teasing David before the podcast started that I, like David, spent some years at BYU, but I was over in the business school and I'm glad for that. It's provided me a wonderful career as a small business owner. But if I could do a do-over, I might do a completely different career. Um, Tell us, tell our listeners as part of your introduction, your education background at BYU. Of course. So I started at BYU in the early 90s. I was uh, um, went there expecting to become a psychiatrist, uh, which is a medical doctor. And uh, through a, a number of events, I ended up uh, switching to psychology, mostly because uh, pre-medical was just, I don't know, at that time, it was just so overwhelming to me. Um, I, I'm grateful that I'm a psychologist as opposed to a psychiatrist. I think uh, the difference for listeners who aren't aware is psychiatry is a medical specialty. And so um, oftentimes their, their primary tool is medication. A psychologist is a PhD or a, or a PSYD, what they call a PsyD, and their primary tool is counseling. And, uh, and medication absolutely has its place and can be very, very effective. But what I find is that in, in many cases, and uh, particularly with anxiety and depression, counseling is absolutely critical. We have to change the way we think about things. Um, and, and medication won't do that. Medication doesn't get in and, and change the way you think. Uh, it will temporarily alter some of the chemical patterns in your brain. But the the thinking solution, in my experience, tends to be a little more permanent. Um, I've been so I was at BYU from '93 to '99, um, 
Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, at 93, I graduated in 93. Uh, I got my bachelor's in 93, my master's in 95, and my doctorate in 99, and started uh, in 90. So, so we were a, there for quite some time. By the, by the time we graduated, we had four children. Um, and uh, and my wife uh, graduated along with me in 95. She got her bachelor's degree and, uh, and then um, was helping take care of the children after that. And then we ended up in the Pacific Northwest, where I started a private practice and have been in practice for, let's see, since so a little over 20 years now. Uh, and that's been great as well to be able to uh, help people. I've uh, visited and evaluated thousands and thousands of people over my career and, um, and really love to integrate the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ when I can. Uh, it's not always possible if you have people who are uh, not of, the, the, of our faith or um, who just don't want to talk about that. But uh, oftentimes I'll find people who, even if they're not Latter-day Saints, they're uh, they like they they believe in God and they're Christians and so we can use some of those principles to help them uh, just gain a better understanding of their situation. You've that's very helpful. You've answered a question that I had actually before the podcast started: is what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? And yes, <laughs> I get a lot of messages from parents, and this is sort of more LGBTQ related. But the, your answer. It's sort of they're looking for a therapist. They use that as kind of a generic term or a counselor. Uh, right. Talk about just to listeners that there's, a, I'm convinced that a high percentage of LDS parents or LDS members want to find someone to help them with their mental health, but they don't quite know where to turn. Um, right. And it obviously doesn't need to be LGBTQ related, just um, their mental health. And it could be stress, anxiety. Will you share just um, for our listeners some overall principles as they're trying to navigate to the right provider to help them? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question uh, and one that I get uh, fairly often. I'll, I'll bet. <laughs> and people call and yeah, and people call and they're looking, uh, especially Latter Day Saints in the area. Oftentimes, bishops will call and say, "Hey, yeah. I've got so and so that's looking for certain services in this area." Um, so the first, and this is just an extremely practical uh, consideration, but unless unless you're independently wealthy, you're probably going to want your insurance to help cover some of the costs of counseling. And so typically I recommend people look at their insurance provider first and just see who is, um, who is listed there. Uh, you can choose from a psychologist, which is someone with a doctorate, or as you mentioned, Richard, like a therapist, which could be a, counsel, a licensed professional counselor, or it could be a marriage and family counselor. It could be someone with a master's in social work. Um, it just varies from state to state in terms of how one gets their credentials. Uh, and then the other thing that you can do is you can get in touch with the local branch of family services, uh, formerly known as LDS Family Services, and sometimes they will have a list of Latter-day Saints providers in the area. Uh, I know in Portland, they do that. They have a list of, there's nine or 10 of us in the greater Portland area, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that one of the individuals maintains there. And then you could cross-reference that list with your insurance list and see if there's anyone that matches up. Um, but I think the most important thing is um, when you're looking for a counselor, looking for someone to talk to, 
is that you have a decent relationship with that person. Um, there's research that they've done, what they call outcome research, and where they've looked at outcomes in counseling. And they studied all sorts of things like uh, amount of time in counseling, the therapeutic modality of the counselor, uh, the different diagnosis, all those things. And as they put all that stuff together, what they found was that uh, there really was only one thing that tended to be predictive. And it was if the individual had a good relationship with their counselor, that they tended to get better. And if they had a uh, neutral or bad relationship with their counselor, they tended to get worse. So I tell people that you are the consumer. You can shop around. If you go and visit with someone one time and you just get a bad vibe and don't think it's a great fit, then don't go again. Go find someone else until you find someone where you have that connection. Because that seems to be the, the best thing. Um, so that's, that's kind of the recommendation there. And it's, and in some areas, it's probably very difficult to find someone who's a Latter-day Saint. Uh, but I think there are a lot of people out there who are familiar with uh, Latter-day Saint theology, or at the very least are um, Christians. And we share so many things in common with the Christian world that I think uh, someone visiting with a Christian non-Latter-day Saint counselor would probably have almost as, probably just as great an experience and even better, perhaps, as long as their relationship was good. That's very helpful. Uh, talk about, talk to parents um, that are trying to navigate this for their child. And, and I like what you said that you want to make sure the, the person has a good relationship with the counselor, therapist, or whatever term. Um, just, and so it may be hard for a parent to gauge that and what's really going on. Just help any thoughts you have for parents that have got a 15, 16, year old kid that they know needs some help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, early in my career, I worked more with adolescents, and my focus is primarily adults now. But uh, oftentimes, I would get parents who would bring their, their 15 or 16-year-old in to see me for counseling, and they would say, you know, Sammy has a problem. You know, she's here to talk with you. And so I'd sit her down and, and Sammy, I'd say, Sammy, what's your problem? And she said, nothing. <laughs> and so there, there was not, not, a, not a whole lot we could do with that. Um, those became very long sessions. So my first advice to parents is your, your child has to want to do this. I know parents mean so well, and I've been in those trenches as well. Our youngest is a senior in high school, so we're almost out of that uh, kind of active child-rearing stage. But... They say, well, I know what my child needs, and therefore I'm going to make them do it because that's going to make them happy. And while that is true, that they will probably be happier if they you know, can successfully engage in counseling, if they're doing it because you force them, it's just not going to work. It has to be something that they choose. So always let the, the child take the lead. And then what parents are going to say is, well, if I do that, they're never going to choose counseling. They're just going to sit there miserable. And, uh, and you're right, they, they probably will. It makes me think of the parable of the prodigal son. And there's so much backstory that we don't have. I can't wait to sit down with the prodigal son someday uh, and just see if he'll give me 15 minutes. And I want to hear the story from when he left his father's home to when we catch up with him sitting in the pigsty, wishing he could fill his belly with what the pigs were eating. We, we know he had some riotous living in there, but I'm particularly curious about the time between when the money ran out 
and when he finally decided to come home. And the scriptures tell us that he came to himself, and that's when he realized he needed to go home and he needed to do something different. And every single one of us has to have that experience. Uh, it, uh, even our adolescents, they have to come to themselves. They have to realize this is something that I need to do for me. And, and at that point is when change can really, really happen. But it has to, it has to be there. And so that's probably the biggest sticking point for parents is them wanting to do something to their children that their children don't want to do. And I can only imagine that father of that prodigal son just praying and praying and praying for probably years that his son would eventually realize what was the best way to do. And, and I think parents can do the same thing. It's a frustrating road, but uh, certainly um, rewarding in the end. That's a great answer. I love the story of the prodigal son, and I've never thought of that part of the story. And that is that I'll be thinking about that all morning on my walk tomorrow, David. Talk about, you talked about medication earlier. I just want to circle back to that. I believe you talked about how a psychiatrist as a doctor can prescribe medication. A psychologist um, does, maybe doesn't or can access right. that through other sources. How as a parent or as, a, as somebody that has working through on their mental health issues, how do you know it, what's the right way to sort of get to medication in an appropriate way? Yeah, that's, that's another great question because as a society, and this is just my opinion, um, it's an informed opinion, but it is just one opinion. I think we're largely over-medicated. I think we often reach to medication first um, because it's it's simple. Uh, I mean, it's you, you go to Walgreens and get your little capsule filled and, and you take one of those every morning. Um, and it, it can absolutely be beneficial in many situations. Uh, the challenge is if you if you don't combine that with active behavioral and cognitive change, and nothing is likely to change in the long term. Uh, usually our first line of prescribers are general practice physicians. And they'll go to your family doctor and you'll say, I'm, you know, I'm depressed or I'm anxious, and, and he or she will uh, prescribe a medication. Uh, that's, that's okay. Um, I, I, you know, general practice physicians, uh, I, I think they're wonderful, but there's a reason it's called general. It's, they're not necessarily specialists. And so, what I would recommend is uh, maybe working in concert with a psychologist or, or another licensed mental health professional and maybe going to that person first, because then you'll be able to really zero in on a diagnosis. That's the, that's the purview of, of psychology and counseling is um, having a really deep understanding of mental health diagnoses. And so that person can help you really determine what exactly is going wrong and then you can take that to your physician or your prescriber and say, hey, we have a diagnosis. What do you think would help with this, if anything? Um, it's like my, uh, I used to have a, a friend who would help me with my car because uh, before I found a trusted mechanic, I, I hated taking my car into the mechanic when something was wrong because I didn't know what was wrong with it. I'd take it in there. And for all I know, they'd tell me it needed $4,000 worth of repairs where all it needed was an oil change. Um, but I was just ignorant of, how it worked. And so my friend said, Hey, don't worry. Anytime your car breaks down, I'll come over. I'll tell you what's wrong with it. 
and then take it to the mechanic and have it fixed. And so that was wonderful because he'd come over and he'd say, oh, it's the left inner tie rod that needs to be replaced. And so I could drive it to the mechanic and say, hey, how much to replace the left inner tie rod? Um, and uh, instead of just having to take their word for it. So working in concert with a, a licensed mental health professional on, then on top of a, a prescriber is great. If you can get in to see a psychiatrist, then you get the best of both worlds because they're licensed mental health professionals on top of being medical doctors. The problem is in most um, locations, I mean, you're looking at probably at least three or four months to get into a psychiatrist. They're just overwhelmed. In fact, if you're looking to go into a profession, psychiatry might not be a bad idea because there's <laughs> a desperate need for more of them. And I anticipate that that's just going to increase uh, in the years to come. That's very helpful. Really balanced answer from my non, you know, clinical or expertise perspective with our own family, my own journey with some mental health issues. Uh, to, we could go a couple ways. You could introduce your latest book to our listeners and why you wrote it and why it's important, or, or you could talk about anxiety um, and maybe those two tie in and just why we're seeing a spike in anxiety as a singles ward bishop. I and in my own life and my own kids' life, and I'm just seeing a spike in anxiety. And I've yeah. wondered how to help YSAs. Obviously, you know, I don't have any clinical training, so I'm kind of careful <laughs> when I get out of scripture, I get out of spiritual um, issues. But at times we needed to address areas that kind of on the margins of my expertise, like anxiety and stress. And I, and so just, Wherever you want to go with a couple of those questions, David. Sure. Yeah, I think anxiety is a great place to to talk about, and and your question is another great one. Um, it's just well, I guess it wasn't a question; it's more of an observation that we're seeing kind of a spike or a definite increase in anxiety and stress, and and certainly we've seen it with COVID nineteen. Um, I mean, good heavens, our lives were turned upside down in you know seventy two hours. And we've still uh, we're struggling to find our balance here, even six months later. Some of us, um, and people will often ask me, "Do you think that there's more anxiety now than there was in the past?" And um, I think I think yes, and I think that the and the reason is twofold. And that's just my own theory. Um, first, I think that you know years ago, if you were a pioneer on the frontier you know, in the mid 1800s, there was no such thing as immediate gratification back then. Uh, everything took time and everything took a lot of time. And if you, so every, uh, every, every spring you would take, you know, weeks and months to prepare your field and you would plant seeds and then you would water it and fertilize it. And you would do that for weeks and weeks and weeks, hoping to get a crop. And then you would harvest that crop in time. Hoping that that would, you know, sustain you through the winter time. And now, you know, I can, uh, I mean, if it's not next day shipping, then I'm thinking I, I need to shop around because uh, there's got to be someplace that will get this to me tomorrow. I don't want to have to wait 48 hours. That's ridiculous. This is 2020. Uh, and, and so we've created this society where we want things right now. When, when people used to live back then, I don't think they expected anything right away. and so. Um, they, they knew that they had to wait. And so if they had problems that they were struggling with, 
they figured, well, this is probably just like farming. It might take, you know, six months, eight months, 10 months to, to get through this. In our, in our now, the, the day we live in now where everything is just so immediate, I think we get frustrated quickly when we can't seem to fix things right away. And that can lead to an increase in anxiety because we think, well, what's wrong? Something's wrong with me. Something's broken because I can't fix this problem in, you know, two business days. I think the other thing that is probably account, accounts for an increase in anxiety is, um, and this again is just pure speculation, but um, I remember there was a quote from Brigham Young, and he had said that he worried about the saints in the latter days because of their prosperity, that they wouldn't have any difficulties to face and that that would lead to a decrease in testimony. And I think that Heavenly Father has probably found a difficulty that we can face. And, you know, we don't, we're not pulling handcarts across the plains anymore, but I think we have more mental health issues. And that, that's one of the things when I talk with individuals about this, um, I say, because when people have anxiety, they think that something's wrong with them. They think, well, I must be broken in some, in some way because I have these feelings. And the first thing to realize is, is you're not. In fact, it's extremely common. Um, everyone experiences it to a certain degree. Some experience it to a pathological degree, and that's when it becomes troubling. Um, but it's uh, otherwise, it's just a normal emotion. And number two, if you view it as a, I don't know, gift seems like the wrong word to use, but I think it's the best descriptor. If you view it as a gift from your Heavenly Father to, for something that you can use to struggle with and to grow and to become stronger over time, then I think that at the very least, it reduces the stigma associated with it. It doesn't take away the full weight of the burden, which it shouldn't, because if burdens were not burdensome, then they wouldn't serve their purpose. So it, uh, but I think it helps reframe it. And so then I can say, I see my, my anxiety symptoms are a way for me to become, to develop greater faith and to become closer to my Heavenly Father. So while they're still distressing on a daily basis, I don't have that added distress of thinking and something's wrong with me and, and I'm, you know, some sort of, you know, societal freak because I have these experiences. I always tell people to not have anxiety about having anxiety. You know, don't, don't add an extra layer of anxiety on top of your anxiety already. It's okay to feel this way. Um, and it very, and it could very well be part of your, uh, of your growth plan with your heavenly father. That's very hopeful. Talk about your latest book. So my latest book is a uh, it's called Can You Feel So Now? And it is kind of a deep dive into Alma chapter 5. Um, and uh, as you'll recall, this is Alma talking to the saints in Zarahemla. And he, he begins, he talks about uh, uh, singing the song of redeeming love and, and getting the image of God in your countenance. And, and, and these marvelous experiences that are associated with this. And then uh, at a later point, he says, if you've had all these marvelous experiences, if you felt that powerful, redemptive um, experience uh, through the Savior's atonement, he says, can you still feel it now? Can you feel so now? And then he kind of launches into a series of questions where he says, these are some things that you, you can do, maybe that you should be doing or that you should not be doing 
in order to kind of maintain that spiritual high. I think most people, at least if, if my life is um, is representative, uh, I kind of go up and down. I have times where I just feel fantastic and feel like, you know, I've, I've got the world by the tail and, and my spiritual life is going very, very well. And other times when I'm just down and I feel stressed out and discouraged and depressed. And I think what Alma is trying to do is he's introducing some principles, some things that we can do to kind of minimize the, um, I, I'm drawing a, a sine curve with my finger that you can't see, but <laughs> it's, it's a curve that goes up and down like, like a roller coaster that has these peaks and valleys. And it's to, it's to minimize the distance between the peaks and the valleys. Um, so that it's uh, like a, a little more boring roller coaster. Uh, and I think spiritually, I don't think we're always going to be on just an upward tra trajectory. I don't think that's the point. But I think we can minimize those times of of uh, kind of deep spiritual distress and, and be on that constant path of improvement. So um, it just follows the principles in Alma chapter 5 and uh, and you know, invites people to reflect on those things and think about things that they can do in their lives to uh, better, to kind of maintain spiritual strength over time. Tell our listeners where they can get this book. So that book, you, it's available on Amazon. And if you go to my website, which is www.ldspsychologist.com, then there's uh, links to all my books there. There's links to, um, uh, I have a blog that I write. I write for uh, LDS Living Magazine on a monthly basis for their online magazine. Uh, I recently started a program with Onward Productions that is called Mental Health Mondays. And so every Monday, I answer viewer questions about mental health issues. And uh, we're just two episodes in. And so if you have a question for a psychologist that you've always been dying to ask, you can go to my website at, uh, again, ldspsychologist.com. LDS and up at the top, there's a link for Mental Health Mondays, and it uh, has the email address where you can write in a question. And if I don't know the answer, I'll, I'll look it up. Um, we'll, we'll list that website again, listeners, at the end of the podcast. Um, I'm glad you've got a website where you've got all your content centralized, David. Talk, you've been in this space for a while, um, in this space from the perspective of a Latter-day Saint. Are you seeing anything in our culture of, that's causing us to engage more in the sort of expertise that you and others have? Um, just in normalizing mental health or talking about it in a different way or just share with our listeners your thoughts as you've been in this space. Have you seen shifts within our our church? Not obviously doctrinal shifts, just cultural or the way we're learning to talk about it. I'm thinking of Sister Alberto's, I may have said her name. Alberto. Talk and general yeah. conference. So just share with our listeners your thoughts on all that. I, I think the shift that we're seeing is absolutely wonderful. And, and you're right, there's no doctrinal shift, um, but there is a cultural shift. And I think that the, the cultural shift is probably uh, worldwide and, and not just um, specific to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're just becoming generally more accepting of mental health issues. It's probably been, I don't have the date at my finger, but it's been at least probably six or seven years when Elder Holland 
kind of broke the ground with his conference talk where it's, it was called Like a Broken Vessel. And it's, it was an amazing talk where he talked specifically about mental health issues and, uh, and, and how the gospel of Jesus Christ can help with that. The church has a website now. Part of their um, website at churchofjesuschrist.org has, has a section uh, complete with uh, mental health um, suggestions and, uh, and, and things that you can read, and it's excellent. Um, it's, as a psychologist, I'm always curious about those things. So I'll get an email, and, and it'll link to that, and I go, hmm, what's, you know, what, what are these people up to? And, but it's very, very good. It's, it's professionally based, it's scientific, and it's doctrinally based as well. So it's very, very good advice. Uh, you mentioned Sister Roberto and just a couple general conferences ago, uh, talked about her father's suicide. And I don't know that I had, I, in fact, I'm sure I had never heard anyone share something probably that deeply personal over that pulpit before. Um, and and, and what, the best thing about that was, I think the, the subtext was that to that was Sister Alberto was saying, it's okay. It's okay to talk about this. It's okay to have gone through this. We're all just kind of in this together. And uh, I really love the, the shift that I'm seeing. I should mention, however, that there is uh, Lucifer, as clever as he is, he is going to play on that. And, and here's what he does. We're, we're shifting away from this idea that we can't talk about mental health. You know, don't go see someone. That's embarrassing. That's shameful. So we're coming more to the center where we're saying, hey, it's okay. Um, get some help. He's trying to push us to the, the, the other extreme. And that extreme is, um, yeah, of course you have mental health issues and that's, that's just the way you are and there's nothing you can do about that. So don't let anyone give you any grief over it. Don't let, you know, no one, you don't need to go to counseling because you're just fine the way you are. Everyone needs to accommodate you. Everyone needs to, um, you know, make exceptions for you uh, because there's nothing you can do about it. You just can't change. It's, it's biological. It's a chemical imbalance, whatever, um, you know, it's hereditary. You know, your mom had it, your grandma had it, your great grandma had it, whatever. And I see a danger in that style of thinking because while it's true that mental health issues can be hereditary, I think they are absolutely hereditary. We either get them biologically or through learned behavior. Um, no question about that. The the danger in that style of thinking in that there's nothing I can do about this that puts us in a place of inaction that puts us in a place where we just kind of sit down and throw up our hands and say, well, there's, there's nothing I can do. So why should I even make an attempt? And it's a very, very dangerous place to be because it, once you sit down and do that, I can tell you exactly where you're going to be five years from now, you're going to be in that exact same spot and you're not going to move. And this life is about, moving forward and progressing despite our difficulties. And I think what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches is, yes, this is a difficult issue. And yes, perhaps you have inherited it from someone or you learned it from your parents, or, or maybe it's just something that's a little strange with your brain and your, your chemicals don't work the way that most people do. But what can you do? What can you do today to try to make that better? And and the gospel is a gospel of action. And the Lord says, he says, we are agents unto, our, unto ourselves. And we, and we have to look for ways to move forward. So we have to find that middle ground between 
um, we don't talk about this, we don't address this, and that kind of radical acceptance where I'm just the way, this is just the way I am and I can never change. There's a space right in the middle of that. And that's my kind of the, the place I like to preach is, is to get right in the middle of that and to make people understand there is hope, but there's also a part for you to do. And I think that that truly is hopeful. Once we realize there's something there is, once we realize that there is something we can do about it, there's a lot of hope in that because then you, you can act, you can do something. It's hopeless to feel like there's nothing you can do. Uh, and I think that's why Satan pushes that, um, that angle. So I, I love that the church is, is talking about this and addressing this more. And I feel that it will just get more and more. Like I said, I, I feel like this is kind of the, this is our handcart trek. Um, the, the youth of today, this is kind of their handcart trek is to deal with mental health issues. And the Lord knows that. And so he's going to give us the, the tools that we need to do it. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is filled with these tools. As I read my scriptures, that's all I see half the time is, oh, there's a, there's a way to manage anxiety. Oh, there's a way to manage depression. Um, and, and that's kind of what I hope to, my role to be in the future is to help other people see that as well. It's a very helpful answer. I love the way you talk about, you know, I, it's interesting. You've, I think it was Alma 5 you said and built a whole book around Alma 5. And, and I would never think of the scriptures helping me to manage anxiety, stress. And I think you're, you're not saying that's the only solution, obviously, just read scriptures and all your mental health issues will be resolved. But it's interesting that you're seeing um, content there that is helpful for us in unique ways in our present day world. I love that. Talk about, go ahead, David. Oh, I was just going to say, you, you talked about uh, the, the scriptures aren't, or the answers aren't exclusively in the scriptures, and you're absolutely right. And that's some of the pushback that people get when we start to integrate um, the gospel into mental health, as they say, well, you can't just pray this away. And I say, you're absolutely right. But why in the world would you not involve prayer in that process? And you can't just read scriptures and, and make this go away. And they're absolutely right. But why in the world would you not study the word of God during your difficulty and seek for answers there as well? I kind of feel like we're being attacked on, on four different fronts from, from Lucifer. And one of those fronts is spiritually, and we have to fight him back on that side as well. And um, so just that idea of, uh, and I think it comes from probably just an older uh, generation maybe, and a lack of understanding and people that have been told, well, if you just prayed harder and if you just read more scriptures, you wouldn't feel this way. And that's not true. Um, but then what people do is they then just reject that intervention out of hand and say, therefore, a gospel-based intervention is not going to be effective at all. And that's not true either. Um, it, it, will, it will definitely add to whatever you're doing, whatever counseling you're doing, whatever medication you're on, uh, whatever self-help books you're reading, if you make sure that you are nurturing your relationship with the Savior and studying His Word every single day and, and developing and, and praying to Him and asking for relief, that is absolutely going to amplify everything else that you're doing and is going to help you achieve better results. I want to go back to um, just talk to moms of young kids that um, are pretty smart, pretty educated, reckon, and just have these hearts that are pretty tender and want the very best for their kids and just um, 
are seeing increased anxiety and stress in younger kids than perhaps we ever had seen before. And they don't really have an owner's manual on how to navigate that. They didn't ever walk that road themselves. We don't talk a lot this, about this at church. They're wondering, is this just kind of a phase? Am, am I causing this? Is our culture that's sometimes can cause us to feel like we don't measure up causing this? Or I realize that it's a lot, it's hard to answer that question, not knowing every parent's child's situation, but I just sense a lot of mothers, really wonderful mothers and probably fathers concerned about even younger kids and not sure how to navigate or if they even or when you'd consider therapy in a situation or when it's just something that is more um, short-term or situational. Right. Um, So I think that the first thing that we need to remember is that not all anxiety is, is clinical or, or clinically significant or pathological. Um, It's anxiety is a very adaptive response. If you, are out in the woods and um, and you see a bear, you know, poke its head out of the brush and start to come after you, you're going to experience an extreme amount of anxiety and it's going to be very, very adaptive in that moment because you're going to be able to run faster and jump higher and, and, uh, and endure longer than you would otherwise. So anxiety is, like I said, it's an extremely adaptive response. The problem is sometimes we have that same level 10 bear in the woods anxiety when we have to get up on stage and play, you know, Mary had a little lamb on our recorder and, and there's nothing um, mortally threatening about playing a song on your recorder, but you know, these children, they'll have that experience. I think the first thing that parents should do is to really try to understand what is normal and what is abnormal because Children are going to take their cue from their parents. There's a, a concept in social psychology, which is called social referencing. And, and you'll see it with uh, very young children. So what happens is something bad will happen, like they'll, they'll trip and fall. And the first thing they do is they look at their parent and they see how their parent reacts. And then that lets them know how to react. And so if their parent goes, oh my gosh, you fell and, and is freaking out, then they're going to start crying because they think, oh, well, this is, this is something that's terrible. I've just fallen. And and I can see from my dad's reaction that this is a horrible thing. Now, if, uh, but if they look up and mom is just smiling and says, hey, looks like you fell. Here, let me, get, let me help you get up. Then they'll probably just smile and, and walk it off. Um, and that, that experience, I think, uh, persists even beyond just, uh, you know, toddlerhood and into young adulthood. The way that you react to your child's experience is going to be very, very instructive to them. And so um, even if you decide that counseling is needed, but if it's like, oh my gosh, you have to go to counseling, this is the worst, you know, we, we never thought it would come to this. Geez, what kind of message are you sending to your child? A lot of shame in that. Even if you're not saying, yeah, yeah, a lot of, a lot of shame and, and you're broken. Um, and, if, uh, and, and even if you're not saying that verbally, but that's your internal experience, you're going to communicate it um, non-verbally. They're going to know that something's wrong. Children are observant and they'll, they'll pick up on those things. So I would say that just, so just trying to normalize as much as possible. If your child says, hey, I just, I really am scared about getting up on stage and playing my recorder, you'd say, that's a good thing to be scared about. That's okay. You know, I'd be scared if I was up there playing my recorder too. 
sounds like it's just going to be about 45 seconds and you'll be, you'll get through it and, uh, and it'll be okay. And if you need me to stand up there with you, I will, or, or whatever it is. Um, but if you're, you know, my first call is to your physician say, Hey, I think my, my son has anxiety. Well, he probably doesn't have anxiety because that's just a very normal thing. Um, I think the other thing that, and what parents need to realize is that um, anxiety, even so clinical anxiety or pathological anxiety, it's just, it's common and it's okay. And we can get through that. And so if a parent adds their angst on top of a child's mental health condition, that's just going to add an additional burden that that uh, child does not need. They don't need to know that I already have anxiety and my parent is upset about the fact that I have anxiety or grieves the fact that I have anxiety. That's, um, that's not helpful. We're all called to pass through tribulation in this life. That's just that's what we do. And righteousness is no guarantee of avoiding tribulation. In fact, righteousness is almost a guarantee that you'll experience tribulation and plenty of it because that's the way we grow, the way we become better and more like our Savior. So recognizing that these experiences are simply just part of that human weakness, part of that, um, that gift that Heavenly Father gives us so that in humility we'll reach out to Him and we'll reach out for help. Um, I think that that, as we can change the way we think about that, then it, doesn't bec- it becomes less of a tragedy and more of, hey, this is, just, this is just something we deal with and we'll get through it just like everybody else and we'll, we'll figure out our way. That's a great segment, David. Um, I wish I'd heard that segment <laughs> 20, 30 years ago. Um, and just sort of prepare myself as a parent that part of, I like your word normal, that to respond in a non-shameful, non-stressed out sort of n- normal way to just the ups and downs of my kids' experiences and and I think they're yeah. more likely to open up to me as a parent if I don't react. I think they're more likely to open up if they mess up, if they get speeding tickets, if they've um, even if they've done something that's you know pretty serious against church teachings. If I create sure. a culture in my family that uh, you don't want to normalize messing up, but you've got to create a culture where your kids feel they understand the teachings of the family and the church, but they also feel safe opening up to you and. And that mortality is, we're not meant to be perfect and we're meant, but we're meant to be able, we should feel comfortable opening up to our parents about what's going on in our life. Well, and I, I think that there's, um, the, the better that we understand the atonement of Jesus Christ, the, the better we are at handling those issues. Because when we really understand the, the magnitude of the Savior's atonement and that it just fixes everything. It, it is not just for sin. It is, it is for mental health. It is for physical disability. It, it's for anything you can imagine. And it fixes it all permanently um, in his time. Uh, in my anxiety book, I write about, and you, you and I will remember this, some of our younger uh, listeners won't remember. You remember decorative soaps, Richard, the the molded soaps that people would put in their bathrooms, yes. like in the shape of shells or things like yes, that, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I remember going to my grandmother's house and uh, getting ready to wash up with that soap. And I, my, she said, no, 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 what are you doing? You can't use that soap. That's the, 
that's the soap that just sits in the dish. And there was a grungy piece of soap in the drawer that I used to wash up because that soap was not to be touched. Sometimes they'd even wrap them in cellophane and just so they could sit there and look pretty. And I thought, of all the ridiculous things, a cellophane-wrapped piece of soap, which serves no purpose except to look good. Um, and I thought, sometimes we view the Savior's atonement like that. We say, oh, yes, I, I understand the atonement. Uh, it's, I understand what it does. And it's like this little cellophane-wrapped soap that sits up here on my mantle. I don't have to use it, of course, because I don't make big mistakes. Um, we're just going to live our lives just right. And we're going to, and we're going to, you know, read our scriptures every day and say our prayers and have family home evening every week. And we're never really going to have to, to break out this soap, but we've got it. We've got it. And I think, oh, that's just such a, a fundamental misunderstanding of that because the Savior's atonement is designed to be used every single day, like this worn out piece of soap. It's just, it's for every, every day we break it out and we wash up from our fingertips to our elbows. Um, every little thing that we want to change, every place where we want to become better, that's the purpose of it. And so when we see it that way, then those so-called tragedies of life um, become less so because then we think, hey, it's okay. Because even if the wheels completely come off this situation, even if, like you said, our, our child makes a, a terrible, horrible mistake, we have the Savior's atonement and he can be made whole because of that. And so I think the deeper we believe that, um, the, the less the sting in those experiences. And then we can say, you know what? It's going to be okay. Even if this goes completely wrong from what I thought it was going to, it's going to be okay because um, of what the Savior has done and because of the power of his, of his redemptive sacrifice. Well, I love that segment, David. I'm... I think that's what the Savior would say to us all in our very worst moments. He'd just fill us with hope. I love Brene Brown's, Brene Brown's quote, shame says, I am bad versus I did something bad. And I don't think Christ wants any of us to feel the core of us as bad. Um, he wants to yes. feel the core of us as good. And I also been uncomfortable with some of the things, not doctrinal, but culturally we've said that like my sin just adds to the burden of the Savior. and and I, I think he's paid the price for all of my current, past, and future sins. And, and so yes. I, I think that creates shame around sin and, and a feeling that we can't turn to the Savior and his atonement because we're somehow adding to his burden. And I just think that's doctrinally not correct and, and keeps us from accessing the power of the atonement. I've always felt like if you and I offend each other, we kind of make each other grovel potentially. and kind of human nature. But I think this is what S. Michael Wilcox taught me, one of my institutes. He says, I think he loves to forgive. It's his greatest gift. He laid his whole life down for the chance for us to forgive. And so why if, you know, we make each other perhaps, if we're not totally pure-hearted, grovel a little bit as they ask for forgiveness, and we know we have that moment of control, I don't think the Savior does that at all. I think he loves to forgive. Um, I think it makes them happy. And I think if we approach it that way, then we're more likely to do what you're sharing with our listeners to take advantage of the power of the atonement. Um, and I think he's more interested. I think he's sad when we make mistakes, but I think he's more interested in what we do after we make mistakes. And if we learn from them, if we use his gift and, and we become a better person. 
any how do you feel about all that david <laughs> i i think that's absolutely correct and i love the um that the kind of the correcting of that mistaken notion that that somehow we've contributed to that uh, that greater burden I, I personally believe that burden was paid in in the aggregate it was an infinite atonement we know about that it's not quantifiable and 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 it's done it's over he's not currently suffering and so it's not like you know it, and like you said i think he suffers more when we refuse to access the gift that he has paid so dearly for why would he be stingy with something that he paid such a terrible price for and something that he doesn't even need uh, that, that's the thing that just boggles my mind is that this was something that he would never apply to himself because he never sinned and he could have gone straight back to our heavenly father upon resurrection because he was sinless he was already perfect so he did this thing that we couldn't do for ourselves um, and, and not only, and the other thing that people need to remember, and Alma teaches this, um, it's either Alma, Am, Alma or Amulek, um, but it's somewhere in there between like chapters, uh, seven and 10 is that, um, I think it's Amulek anyway, Jesus not only paid the price for our sins, but he suffered our weaknesses as well. He suffered our, our, he suffered your anxiety. He suffered your depression. He suffered your, um, you know, uh, gender issues. He suffered through all of that. So he knows how to help us in our moments of distress. And I particularly love that piece about the Savior's atonement, because again, this is a very uh, suppositional on my part, but I've always wondered, could he have affected the atonement and simply paid the price for sin and then resurrected? And then we could have all and then we could be forgiven because he's intervened there with justice and mercy was the case without having to suffer for our, our uh, flaws. And I don't know if he could have or not, and, but I kind of think of him as the type of person who said, you know, but let's add an extra layer to this. Even though it's going to be more suffering on my part, that way I can know them better. I can know what they're going through. And I love that the, in, in every case, we can go to the Savior and he knows exactly what you're going through because he's been through it. He's already experienced it on your behalf. He knows the way out and he can show you the way out. And that applies to every issue that we will ever experience. Anything that makes us different from God, you can apply that to that. And so um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that understanding. And like you said, because of that, I think the Savior is just actively eager every single day to extend his mercy and his grace to us. And probably the only thing that keeps us from that is that we're not asking for it. That's a really good segment too, David. I'm so glad you're on the podcast. I I certainly understood, at least in my intellectual standpoint, the power of the atonement to take away sin. That was such a focus of my mission, my my own personal life. These kind of steps we went through the repentance process. And so that to me intellectually resonated with me and had a personal experience and helped other people through that. But this other layer of the atonement, it's interesting you say, you know, Christ could have just done it without this, but all the pain that comes into our lives, that's not sin related. And the older I get, the more that I see that in my life and see that in people that I love and the ability of the atonement to help us, to heal us. And 
that doesn't replace a therapist. I think we need Jesus and a therapist. And, you know, but yeah. <laughs> it's sort of this idea that Christ descended below all things. And so even though there's not a scripture of Christ experiencing a drunken driver that's taken your mother or all the things that we could all list for the next two hours, somehow he understands that pain and can go there with us and heal us from the pains of mortality. Um, I love that. And I continue to want to learn about that so that I can apply that in my own life and help others. Um, just to, I'm going to shift gears a little bit on you. When I was a singles ward bishop, and I've shared this in a couple times in the podcast, I ended up seeing a therapist. It's the second time in my life. And um, I just, I think I was suffering from compassion fatigue and just my emotional gas mm-hmm. tank was getting pretty low. Um, and I probably didn't need to meet with her for very long, but I ended up meeting with her weekly for about a year and a half. And the reason was, is I started to take to her um, situations that I was dealing with as a bishop without a name. I kept that confidential. And she, and I don't know of her, um, I think she is a doctor, has a PhD now, but I don't know what it, it's in. She ended up helping me so much to help the YSAs. And one of the things we we're working on with the YSAs is pornography, as you would know and would. And yeah. she taught me this iceberg concept that often what I would see as a YSA bishop is what's above the iceberg. And that could be sin-related stuff that obviously needed to be addressed like pornography. But often we kind of needed to set that on the side a little bit and try to understand what was really going down at the bottom of the iceberg. And I don't have clinical skills to do that, but sometimes we would kind of try to do that together and get them to LDS family services or therapists. But sometimes we'd find down there was anxiety and stress and loneliness and a need for connection. And sometimes in the case of pornography, we did better solving pornography, which is, you know, getting down there and sort of understanding this coping mechanism that we could see at the top of the iceberg um, that we really needed to solve it long-term. We need to understand what was going down there. And even sexual sin, I recognized um, for a women was sometimes not it was sin and it was sexual sin, but sometimes, and I saw this a little bit more for women than men, it was, uh, it was part of their poor emotional health and the need to, for connection, the need to feel loved. And sometimes that's the only way you could feel loved. And it was still a sin, but it helped me develop more nuance or more sort of understanding of the uniqueness of everybody's situation. Um, that's just, I don't know if you feel okay with that or if you have some thoughts on that. It was just a helpful sort of insight for me um, as I worked with YSAs. I think so. I think that um, one of the things, well, and especially regarding, you know, use of pornography or, um, or sexual sins, that is almost always a symptom of, of something deeper and something more significant. And like you said, there's usually some pretty significant relationship issues, uh, often some self-concept issues, things like that. And until those, that those are the roots, those are the trunk and the roots. And it doesn't do us a whole lot of good to be plucking off leaves off the tree, uh, you know, one leaf at a time and expect that tree to, to somehow wither and die. At some point, you have to get down to the, like you said, kind of the bottom of the iceberg and figure out what's going on down there. Um, but it is. Uh, I think what's important for um, 
for people to understand is that, um, like, you know, like you said, we're all struggling with something and, and it's okay. There's no, there's no problem with, with that. And the shame associated with that really needs to be diminished. Um, yeah. Um, any advice for bishops, um, out there, especially YSA bishops is, I mean, I was just, that was really difficult for me, David. I got set apart and we talked about, there was a line of YSAs lined up and we talked about (laughs) pornography in that first interview. And we were talking about pornography, you know, for the whole YSA assignment. And I just, I, it was perplexing for me. Um, and I do have an Ensign article coming out the 1st of October in the October edition for the YSA Digital with, I'm not clinically trained, just sort of my um, best practices dealing with that for, you know, during the YSA assignment that is hopeful for the YSAs. But do you have any advice for, I just wish I had been, had better tools right off the bat to, I mean, I can invite someone to stop looking at pornography and to sort of quote them scripture and talk about, you know, their, the path they're on. And, but they usually understood that better than I did. Um, they needed, right. and I recognized that, I just recognized I was not very well equipped to deal with um, some of these issues. So any advice for YSA bishops in particular, all bishops as they're dealing with pornography? Married, it can, it so, can be a home ward or a singles ward. Of course, yeah. It's, pornography is no respecter of persons, and it's it's rampant among males and females, singles and married, um, gay and straight. I mean, it's it it seems to be kind of an equal opportunity um, plague. Uh, one of the things. So some years ago, President Nelson, I think he was president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles at the time. He was asked what um, what could be done to help you know to help people struggling with pornography. And uh, I read this at a later date, and I have, I have yet to hear a more succinct and apt description of how to proceed with this. He said, teach them their identity and purpose. And, and I have reflected on that for years since then, and it is one of the most genius things I have heard about that. Um, because when, when people get uh, mixed up in pornography, they get quite lost. Um, it, the pornography becomes, it has an addictive potential and it's not always addicting per se, um, but it certainly has an addictive potential. I love that. And oftentimes people feel like, what's that? I love what you just said on that. I came to that conclusion too, but keep going, David. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, not everyone who looks at pornography is addicted to pornography. Some are, um, and there's clinical definitions. It doesn't really matter If, if you can't put it down. It doesn't matter what we call it. It's getting in your way, so let's fix it. But if we understand our identity and purpose, if we understand who we are and what we are about, if we truly understand that, then these, um, these nuisances like pornography or anything else, laziness or uh, inability to connect or whatever it is, all the, the mortal weakness that we face, it kind of becomes less important. Uh, you know, if you can think about a time when you were very, very highly motivated uh, to do something, we're huge fans of Disneyland. And, um, and so we'll go there. And I tell you that, you know, the first thing in the morning when you're there, if I'm trying to get to Space Mountain, and I want to be one of the first in line, 
I can tell you what's going to get in my way. Nothing's going to get in my way. I mean, I know exactly where to go, exactly what back ways to take and how to get there to, to maximize my position in line because I'm motivated. I know exactly what I'm about in that moment as opposed to just showing up and peering at the map and thinking, what am I going to do today? So helping people understand who they are and not just as not just in the generic as children of God, although that's very important, but um, I recommend that they do a real deep study of their patriarchal blessing because that has a lot of information about your identity and, and who you are and what Heavenly Father wants you to be and then understanding your purpose as well. And so what does Heavenly Father want you to accomplish here? What, is, what, are, what are his goals for you? And I think they're not just his goals for us. I think we probably agreed upon these goals when we left. We simply don't remember that. But we probably, at some point, there's probably some heavenly document that has our name on the dotted line at the bottom that, where we agreed to all of this and, uh, and um, with full informed consent. But the more that we understand our eternal identities, our, our um, positions as children of God, and, and specifically what our role is in the unfolding restoration, and then what we're supposed to do about that. What, what are you supposed to do to further the kingdom of God? Then I think that these um, distractions have less power in our lives. And that's not the whole solution. Um, there's going to be other things that people are going to do, and like the bottom of the iceberg and, and things like that, where professional intervention may be necessary. But I think that's a, a good place where bishops could start, is just talking about identity and purpose and, and have the youth learn that. Don't tell them what their identity and purpose is. Go have them find it out. So you come back and tell me what is your identity and what is your purpose. And you can explore that together. And I think there is power in that, not just, not just because it makes good sense to me, but because it was spoken by a prophet of God. So uh, those two things combined tell me that this is a gold standard in terms of helping people with this problem. I really love that. Um... We did a podcast, if our listeners want to listen and learn more about this, episode 170, Joe and Amy Pearson. Um, Joe Talk, who's been married to Amy for 27 years, talked about his pornography. I think he used the label addiction that continued through their marriage. And he's been clean of that for about two or three years. It just about cost him his marriage. But it fascinating to listen to what ultimately lifted this from him, and he just simply felt the love of God for him in the most yeah. beautiful, tender way that he has the words to describe. And that, I think, is exactly what President Nelson was teaching. What you're teaching, David, is that I believe Satan wins. <coughs> Satan wins when we sin, but Satan really wins and ultimately wins. We can cause us to believe the lie that we're that we're separated from our heavenly parents and their ability to love us and that we're outside of the circle of their love or we're outside of the circle that they would want us and want to continue to help us. And I do strongly believe, you know, in this idea that we are beloved children of heavenly parents and they love us and that that love is unconditional. That doesn't mean we, we are automatically in the celestial kingdom where they're not disappointed in us. They wouldn't invite us to repent and prove, but I just, like, my love for my kids is just, you know, I love them. Um, with whatever choices they make, I want to be for with them 
and for them, no matter what's going on in their lives. And so I think I love what President Nelson focuses back on their core identity and what that means to them doctrinally that is so clear. And so if you're working on pornography, I think David and I would both invite you to remember that first. And don't sort of go and think, I'll solve this on my own. I won't tell anybody about it. Then I'll kind of return to my heavenly parents and return to praying, and then I'll feel okay again. I just think that's not the way to go about this. I think you have to believe that God wants to help you right now and loves you right now. Any more thoughts on that topic before we move on, David? I think that's just, that's just a great summary of that. And um, this idea that we can never sink below our Heavenly Father's potential to love us is just really critical, and it's absolutely true. Um, I think one of the one of the greatest griefs of our Heavenly Father is that we don't remember the relationship we had with Him in the pre-existence. Um, I, I think that we loved being with Him. I think that, I don't know how it works eternally, but I, I can picture myself taking long walks with Him and, and talking about mortality and talking about His experiences in mortality and, and what mine would be like. And, and we visited and talked about it and, and He gave me encouragement. We, we just dropped off one of our children at college and, and I, and I, you know, filled with pride, but, but also filled with, um, you know, a little bit of grief as well, just at that separation, but he still remembers me, you know, he texts me and calls me and, and that's nice. And, and the problem is with our heavenly father is we don't remember that. And so sometimes we're distant and we're, you know, we spend years trying to, you know, rekindle that relationship with him but it, it hasn't lapsed from his memory. And so I wonder if that's something that's just hard for him to deal with. And I don't, not suggesting that Heavenly Father struggles with anything because I'm sure he doesn't, but um, I just think that might be uh, something that's difficult, just knowing that, that your child doesn't remember the love that you have for them. And his love is so amazing and it's eternal and, and there's literally nothing that we can do that will make him love us any less. Um, there are consequences for our behavior, and and at times we have to pay the price for those consequences. But that is absolutely separate from the concept of love. And we have a hard time understanding that because as human beings, we tend to lump, lump those together, and we think, well, if you betray me, then I'm going to like you less. And uh, but Heavenly Father, it doesn't work that way with him. And the, the more we understand that, the more approachable he becomes. And, and like that fellow you were referring to, once we feel that love, that pure love of our Heavenly Father, oh, there's nothing else like it. And I think it's even more poignant because we probably, it, it probably, there, there's a connection between how we are now and how we were then. And it's like almost like our, our, our mortal bodies are, are reaching out and taking hands with our, our pre-mortal spirits. And, and for just a minute, we're reconnecting and remembering those long walks and and amazing talks that we have with Heavenly Father. And, and that has um, incredible transformative power. That's cool. There's so much hope in that. As I, you're kind of Dr. Hope here, David. I'm renaming you <laughs> instead <laughs> of Dr. Morgan. Hope, hope is the best thing we've got. <laughs> but, you know, just the more I learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ and just hearing you talk about our Heavenly Parents, it just gives me hope. And I think that is something, that's my favorite word. It's been my favorite word outside of my, I guess, my wife and my kids' names 
for a long time. And I just, I just think if I fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and fully own it, it tends to have fear leave me and hope fill me, even in a time when the, the world's very divisive and there's, I do believe that Satan is real and the world is going downhill. Um, I don't believe that is a uniform statement in every category. I think there's lots of categories the world is actually improving um, and getting better. Um, poverty, from what I understand, is improving. And But I do agree that it's the last days. But I just love what you're teaching. One last segment before we sign off. I'd love to talk about suicide. I'd love you to talk to um, parents that are worried that their children might be suicidal and not quite knowing what to do or what not to do. If you're, I assume you're okay talking about that. And, and then sure. if you talk to people that are actually listening that are suicidal, um, we don't want to, neither of us want to do anything to trigger, but it's like Sister Alberto said, talking about suicide in appropriate ways doesn't increase the likelihood that someone will die by suicide. So just, I'll let you just kind of talk about suicide in any way you want and any feelings you have. Sure. Well, it's, as, as you mentioned that, one of the first things that comes to mind is, is President Nelson's counsel again, right? Identity and purpose. I mean, who are we and why are we here? And developing a better understanding of that, I think, will help us um, realize that, that kind of cutting our mortal experience short won't necessarily do us any favors. Um, there's, the church has uh, become very, very excuse me, invested in talking about this. Elder Rendland uh, did some uh, talking about this recently. And, and I think that there are great, great mercies for those who, um, who take their lives early. And I don't think that there's, um, and we don't, we don't know, but we know that, you know, the Savior uh, affected the atonement so that he could be merciful. Justice was already there. We've got plenty of justice flying around. Uh, mercy was what was needed, and and through the power of His atonement, we can have mercy. I think talking about it is uh, is critical. Sometimes it's difficult because uh, you'll see uh, situations where people will say, "We had no idea," and and everything was fine, and and none of the telltale signs were there. You know, there wasn't you know significant depression, and they weren't you know talking about end of their life or writing notes or or giving away possessions or things like that. Um, Jane Clayson Johnson's book, uh, Silent Souls Weeping, is an excellent, excellent read. Um, I just read it not too long ago. For a lay person, uh, she has a remarkably good grasp on um, on depression, and and there's a specific chapter in there about suicide. So yes. I highly recommend that. It's an excellent book. Um, and the other thing is that uh, again, we need to just kind of uh, detach the, the stigma as well. Our, the, there's, um, President Iron has talked about how um, there is, in the flesh, in our mortality, that we're able to progress quicker and, and easier than in the spirit. And so um, sometimes I, I feel like, so it's, all, it's like we're all in college or something, and, and suicide is maybe dropping out early. Um, instead of finishing the coursework. That doesn't mean we can't complete the coursework later. We probably can. Um, but I think it's more difficult under different circumstances. 
And like you said about hope, um, hope is the antidote to suicide. Suicide is just predicated on this idea that that there's there's nothing left. I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. And 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 all I need to do is just end it right now. Uh, well, and we know because of the restored gospel that nothing ends when this life ends. Our our mortal probation ends, but our spiritual progression continues, and we continue to develop and progress. Um, until we reach the measure of our Father in heaven, or until we choose to stop and settle for a lesser prize. Um, so maintaining hope in life is just, it's absolutely critical. And so I think if parents, if they're dealing with individuals who are, um, who are struggling, children who are struggling, to help them see the hope, to help them see that, um, that things are going to be okay, that, and it's okay to walk these dark paths as well. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and the Savior has been through that as well. And sometimes that light doesn't come from for some time, but we have to continue in the struggle. Uh, giving up early, um, like I said, I, we, I don't know what sort of eternal consequence there will be for that, but it does, I think it does limit, um, it short circuits our progress a little bit. And, uh, and while that progress may be, capable we may be capable of it later it might be under different circumstances i don't know um but my heart goes out to any who feel that way and, and if you're listening and if you feel like um like you're like the world would be better off without you that's absolutely untrue that is satan talking to you he is a liar he is bent on your misery and destruction and if you can listen to the voice of your savior if you can hear him talking to you he is saying it's going to be okay I will help you through this. Um, and if you can make it through these difficulties, one of the, the one of the most blessed things that's on the opposite side of that is you will have developed the capacity to help others in a way that no one else can. There's just a, um, there is an authenticity that comes from having been through an experience and then being able to help someone on the other side of that. Uh, and it's way different than having read about it in a book or having studied it in college or even having had a friend go through it or something like that. Um, it is uh, so hang in there because not only is life much more be much uh, more beneficial with you in it, you're probably being prepared to help someone else at a later date who's going to need your assistance and need your, your specialized um, perspective that no one else has. And you're going to find that person and you're going to say, I know what you're going through. And there's going to be a connection there and you're going to save their life as well. So um, don't give up. Never, never give up. Uh, Heavenly Father loves you. The Savior loves you. They will help you through anything and, and you'll be able to help others as well. And you're going to save their lives also. Those are powerful words, David. I love... Um, that you're it's that's the reason we love elder holland is just what you're talking about because he was open about his own journey with his mental health and um this reminds me of a quote i read on this podcast it's very similar to what you just said it's called the wounded healer a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks the great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there so those that, you know, have felt suicidal that have made suicide attempts, 
I join my voice with David and, and plead with you, invite you to stay and that you, um, not only is the world better off, but you can authentically help other people in a way that no one else can. And, and that's what Jane Clayson Johnson is doing in her book. And, and she was on our podcast listener. She's episode 100. If you want to listen to her story, I, I join with David to invite people to listen to read her book. It's a great book and it really helped me. And um, I put on Instagram today, it's kind of a, it's not too serious, but um, I found this was true for me. Maybe it's true for you listeners. Want to improve your emotional health, reduce fear in your life and see others in a better light and feel more hope. Stop watching cable news. You can still stay informed. Um, I suggest fact-based print media and people have commented on that post um, today and pointed to some print media that tends to be perhaps less polarizing. And I had to, that's some people may be fine watching cable news, but for me, I, it doesn't mean I don't care about politics or I don't have my um, beliefs, but I try to let those stand on their own merits without demonizing another group or, or watching cable TV to just help me feel better about how I feel by demonizing or taking on or, because I find that does help me sometimes to feel good about my political beliefs, but I find, at least for my personality, that increases my anxiety and my fear, and I learned I needed to separate myself from cable news. So I use that as just an example. That's not a hardline recommendation, and there may be cable news executives listening. I don't know if there are, but um, that would disagree <laughs> with that. Um, I watch the Weather Channel on cable news and sports and um, so there's, I don't want to be too binary on that. Um, just, I want to, I, I like, I like, I like listening to general conferences. I that's, to work. That and, tends uh, not to be too. It, 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 yeah. <laughs> Interesting. You mentioned that I'm doing a fireside, a zoom fireside for a stake in Utah this Thursday night. And that's actually one of the points I'm going to make is one of the ways to reduce the amount of fear you experience is to consider what you're putting into your brain on a daily basis. And I'm going to say, if you're reading your scriptures for 15 minutes a day and watching cable news for eight hours on that same day, I can tell you how you're going to feel at the end of that day. Perfect. Um, you know, there's just, you know, there's, there's what, what you go, what goes in. And so and we don't have to stick our heads in the sand either. That's not right. the point, but we need to really consider what we're feeding our minds and spirits with and make sure that there's, that there's some balance there. You know, you can, Maybe you get a little bit of news and then you get a little bit of jazz, a little bit of classical and a little bit of, uh, of reading in a good book and some scriptures and some prayer. And, and then by the end of the day, it's probably a pretty good day. Uh, this has been a great podcast, um, David. Would you leave us with just any closing thoughts and then please um, help our listeners know your website again and just let us know again the name of your latest book. Sure. Um, yeah, just one of the things that came to mind as we were talking earlier was, and and just as you mentioned, this kind of the polarization that we're starting to see in society and the demonizing of of other groups, and it happens to every side. It's not restricted to the right or to the left. Um, every side does it. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed, and I think I, I addressed this in my latest book, when we're talking about judging other people, we tend to... Um, render very, very big judgments with limited information. And sometimes I use uh, money to describe it. We're making $5 judgments with a nickel's worth of, uh, of information. 
and and in almost every case we're wrong. Um, I, I've come to realize this, and I have some very long stories that I won't go into tonight. But uh, just regarding how I've come to understand that um, the more that I learn about someone, the more compassion I tend to have for them, the the greater love I tend to have for them. And as I thought about that theoretically, I thought, well, that kind of makes sense. So here I am making my my five dollar judgment with a nickel's worth of information. And then if you go to the complete other end of the spectrum and consider, well, who knows everything about us? Who has $500 worth of information about us? Well, that's the Savior. He knows everything about us, down to the details that we don't even understand about ourselves. He understands. And what's his judgment? It's like we talked about before. He just loves us. He loves us completely. He's completely merciful and compassionate and understanding and forgiving. And so I wonder if there is not a relationship between how much you know about a person and how much compassion and love and understanding you have for them. And so in this age of, of polarization and, and hate and divisiveness, I wonder if we wouldn't do well to, instead of rendering quick judgments, if we thought, you know what, I think I'm going to take some time to get to know that person first. I'm going to, you know, I saw a, a sign in their front yard that suggests a certain political persuasion, but I'd like to go talk with them. And I, I'm telling you, more often than not, the, the more that you talk with someone, even people you thought were going to be your worst enemies, sometimes they turn out to be your best friends. So, so really be careful with, with your judgment um, and, and try to gather as much information as you can before you decide how you're going to feel about that person. And like I said, generally speaking, um, it is almost always turns out that you judge them much less harshly than you would in the past. That, and that is um, from one of my chapters in my latest book, which is uh, Can You Feel So Now? And, uh, and again, you can find that information, information about me. If you have a question, you can get in touch with me um, at my website, www.LDS psychologist, so like Latter-day Saint psychologist, ldspsychologist.com. Um, on behalf of our listeners, um, David, thank you for reaching. Thank you for being on the podcast. I'm glad you reached out, we're connected, and you have a beautiful life ministry of, of bringing in your, your, your academic expertise, your clinical experience for 20 years in private practice, your understanding of our beautiful restored doctrine and talking about it in a public way through writing, through podcasts, through public speaking, through Zoom. And I just hope more and more people are connected to your voice because it brings hope and healing. So thank you on behalf of our listeners. And this is Richard Osler, your host of Listen, Learn, and Love, signing off from another episode. Mm-hmm.